dumps. Hail Fellowship's eternal flame. Once again, Midsummer sets us free. What if I were to tell you that this is all real? Not the creepy background music, but rather the sounds of a secret group of rich, white, powerful men performing a weird, sacrificial ritual. And we're going to explain why that actually makes a lot of sense. Welcome to Meaning Studies. Hello, you are listening to the second episode of the Jack Cooper podcast. With special guest, Thomas <laughs> Cooper. <laughs> I mean, I am, I'm not sure I'm even a special guest today. <laughs> I'm just an occasional soundbite. Yeah, welcome to the conspiracy episode. Yeah. Or the rich and the rituals, I like to call it. Jack actually, um, he's come up with the theory for this episode. So if anyone's listening exclusively for me, uh, <laughs> it's probably best to, to turn off now. We're talking about the weirdness that is Bohemian Grove. So as I am um, as equally uninformed as perhaps the listeners, uh, how would you describe Bohemian Grove? So, Bohemian Grove is a 2,700-acre campground owned by the Bohemian Club, which was formed in 1872 with a focus on arts and culture. Yeah. Now, that sounds very innocent. Um, however, we know a few things which are kind of weird, kind of strange, and kind of very shady um, about Bohemian Grove and give it this reputation as being one of the most influential secret societies have ever existed yeah so according to wikipedia it describes bohemian grove as a more than two-week encampment of some of the most prominent men in the world this cnn report puts it quite nicely president bush is a member along with former president ronald reagan also past secretaries of state george schultz and henry kissinger yeah i see it's really uh, a playground for the powerful or a boy scout camp for the very rich the more you look into Bohemian Grove, the stranger it gets. For example, in 1942, the Grove played host to an influential early meeting in the development of the Manhattan Project. And in 1967, Nixon and Reagan had an important meeting in which Reagan agreed to stand only if Nixon faltered. They also uh, liked to piss everywhere. Um, which is another Don't we all? Uh, specific feature of the club. Um, and it's part of this sort of patriarchal boys club vibe that um, mm. the club very much gives off. It's part of this idea of kind of male freedom and was one of the main reasons that they so protested against having women in the club because they just love to um, piss. And As if women themselves. don't also love to piss. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, I think it's uh, it's an element of transit. There's the element of transcending taboo there and finally they're free of these societal constraints mm. even as something as simple as that it's all quite weird and strange and it's one of those conspiracy theories that you perhaps shouldn't look into 
for fear of being almost permanently unsettled by how convincing the evidence appears. Especially when we know that on the first night of camp, everyone dresses up in cloaks to perform a ritual known as a cremation of care, which involves the ferrying of a wooden skeleton across a lake, and then its sacrificial burning at the altar of a 40-foot owl shrine. Damn. Bohemian Grove is strange. This ritual I just described is known as a cremation of care, and the idea is that the rich men are cremating the dull cares of conscience, evaporating the worries of the outside world during their encampment at Bohemian Grove. This was actually recorded by um, Alex Jones and John Ronson. An unlikely duo. You heard that at the beginning, but what you didn't hear was Alex Jones describing it as where they congregate and prepare themselves to properly thank their deity. Again, the 3,000-plus-year-old Moloch. Perhaps you find this comforting because, well, Alex Jones is a lunatic, but doesn't he have a right to be scared in this case? From what we can understand, this is a group of the most rich, white, and powerful men on the planet meeting for two weeks every year in a closely guarded location having great dinners, putting on an expensive play, listening to speeches, drinking a lot, talking and connecting, pissing everywhere, and engaging in some sort of ritual sacrifice. It's like a horror cosplay Bilderberg group, for those of you who know your conspiracy theories. Alex Jones has his theory to explain what he witnessed at the Grove that midsummer night in 2000, and we have a different one. This is the crux of this episode. We're talking about Bohemian Grove not because we want to convince you that the global elite secretly rule the world. We already believe that. Yeah, it's not a secret. Um, but because we want you to feel sorry for them. And in order to do that, we need to talk about something that's probably as different from 3,000 plus year old Molochs as you can get. We need to talk about cake mix. Honey! When was the last time you baked a cake? Last week, dear. Oh, I didn't see any cake around here. As psychological legend goes, in 1950s America, instant cake mixes weren't selling well. Despite simplifying the process greatly and being fantastic products, housewives just weren't on board. The product made baking too easy, so they didn't value it. This was dreadful for the manufacturers. What on earth could they do? Fortunately, one man had the answer. In order to solve the mysteriously stalling sales, a psychologist, Ernest Dichter, instructed manufacturers to change the recipe to require the adding of an egg. When you add the egg, you're sure to get finer cakes most consistently. The resulting extra labour would give the housewife her satisfaction and increase the value of the product. And what happened? The ladies loved it. Stop it, dear. I'm starving. Okay, so that's not quite accurate. Like many famous psychological anecdotes and indeed instant cake mix, that was something of a sexist oversimplification because we feel it's our role to provide you with inaccurate information <laughs> purely for comedic purposes yeah <laughs> um, the reality is a lot murkier and more complex involving fresh eggs and female emancipation um, but if you use the anecdote 
because it's a perfect description of a genuine phenomenon, which is effort justification. Mm. And this is also known as the IKEA effect. And it's quite simple. The more effort people put into a pursuit, the more they come to value it. Yeah, and it's why filtered coffee tastes nicer than instant coffee. (laughs) It's true. Um, I've no idea what that means. Um, (laughs) A darker application of this idea of filtered coffee um, can be seen in the results of a slightly sadistic 1966 experiment. The researchers were interested in the psychology of initiation and with the low bar of 1960s ethical standards behind them, (laughs) were able to apply a variation on this mechanism. Participants were told that they had to undergo a test, well, initiation, uh, to make sure they would objectively participate in a later discussion. If they failed the test, they wouldn't be allowed to join the discussion group. The test involved participants being sprayed with perfume, shown a series of paintings, played an audio recording of a shooting sequence from Billy the Kid, and then given a series of electric shocks. I got progressively darker. (laughs) Yes. Um, After this test, they were then told um, that they'd passed and listened to a deliberately worthless recorded discussion, supposedly from the group they were to join. What's so interesting about this experiment alongside the general cruel, bizarre weirdness to it, um, is that researchers found that the more severe the electric shock, the more the subject in turn liked the group. This aids the reasoning, however horrible, for groups to make initiations as painful as possible, and explains the countless bizarre and painful initiation rituals that exist. Steve Batchel, maybe not that famously, tried the manhood ritual with the Sateri Maui tribe in the Amazon rainforest. A sting from a bullet ant is bad, really bad, hence its name. It's rated 4 out of 4 on the Schmidt Sting Pain Index, and it's been described as like walking over flaming charcoal with a 3 inch nail embedded in your heel. For the initiation ritual of the Sateri Maui tribe, you have to put your hands in gloves filled with sleeping bullet ants and hold them there for 10 minutes, making no sound while the bullet ants wake up. Members of the tribe have to do this up to 20 times. Steve Batchel did it just once and described it as the worst pain the human body is capable of experiencing. But perhaps all we need to say is it made Steve Batchel cry. Well, that is one thing I'm sure you did not expect to hear today. Um, the tears of possibly the toughest man of all time. We love Steve Bakshul, and he did later on, on a Deadly 60 episode, um, have a bullet ant crawl over his hand. That is one of the greatest sacrifices that I've ever seen for kids' TV, so appreciate that. Whoa, it's not kids' TV. 
true, true. <laughs> Deadly sixty is uh, is adult stuff. As adult stuff, um, and so looking at talking about this um, horrible initiation um, without the knowledge of this psychological insight that the more we suffer in initiations, the more we like the group. This could be seen as needless torture, but actually it functions as this clever device to increase the bond of the tribe. And it helps to illuminate the cruel realities of countless initiation rituals. Uh, a good example would be our nameless cousin. Um, Maybe you should just call him M. M. <laughs> cousin M. Subject M. <laughs> I'm at university and he's part of a society called the Lost Boys. Um, and in order to join the Lost Boys, it's kind of like a drinking society. And I imagine most of the members uh, fit the name Lost Boys relatively well. <laughs> But, uh, <laughs> Damn. Apologies. Apologies, Em. <laughs> but uh, their initiation ceremony, I think it's they have to drink 10 pints in two hours or something like that. And then while they're drinking, everybody else spits beer in their hair, tips beer all over them. It's um, very COVID friendly. Yeah, but they, but, but they love it. And of course, drinking pints in two hours isn't necessarily a fun thing to do unless you're kind of 25 stone and alcoholic <laughs> but <laughs> fun and easy yeah but it does uh, seem to bring them closer because they they keep coming back for more yeah and you can see other examples in in rugby uh, maybe dorms. it should be the, the lost masochists society. <laughs> <laughs> yeah dorms fraternities uh, secret societies another example is a gang known as the junkie funky kids Name. which aren't quite as innocent as the name <laughs> makes out um, and they're a, a South African gang and to join them you have to go through basically just a sadistic obstacle course um, where you're beaten with planks and chains um, as you run through um, and of course applying this insight the more pain you're suffering there physical pain rather than I don't know is it physical pain in the Lost Boys potentially that's <laughs> the emotional pain <laughs> um, <laughs> of going through this initiation and once you're through it you actually like the group weirdly more yeah so this is strange and hopefully now you agree with this but we still haven't answered the most simple and important question which is why um, why why? <laughs> uh, this phenomenon is best explained by a theory called cognitive dissonance. According to psychologist Leon Festinger, whenever we choose to do something that conflicts with our prior beliefs, feelings, or values, a state of cognitive dissonance is created in us. A tension between what we think and what we do. So, cognitive dissonance theory rests upon this idea that as human beings, we strive for internal psychological consistency to function mentally in the real world, telling ourselves stories and narratives about our lives. Basically, an internal justification mechanism that operates whenever we're presented with two ideas, beliefs or values that conflict. A good example of this justification can be seen in the dehumanisation that a soldier uses for the enemy. Being brought up in a world where killing is morally wrong, a good way to rationalise or justify your actions as a soldier is to perceive the enemy as subhuman. Because otherwise, if you've been told, thou shalt not kill, killing is morally wrong, how can you live with yourself 
and on a daily basis you are forced to confront that and contradict that value. Hence, it's easier to perceive the enemy as subhuman. In other words, we try to reduce the dissonance between how we think we should act and how we actually act by changing one or the other. Cognitive dissonance perfectly explains initiations. I just went through this awful experience. There must be a reason for it. There isn't. I must really want to join this group. Why? I must love this group. They're awesome. And you're attached. I think it could almost be considered a psychic defence mechanism. Kind of the uh, unfathomability that our pain could possibly be in vain. That there's not an object that we are suffering for. Yeah, and this is the way it works. It's a justification mechanism. Completely. And an interesting example where we can apply this exact script is boarding schools. And more generally to the emotionally damaging childhoods of many rich people. And we say many rich people, we don't mean all rich people. Um, We know some lovely rich people. We're focusing more on inherited wealth. But if you're listening to this and thinking, I am a rich person, we hate you just just (laughs) because of that line. So yeah, this is is when the... uh, episode kind of wraps around and things start to make sense a little bit more Um, I'm waiting for it too (laughs) (laughs) so in his book Stiff Upper Lip the journalist Alex Renton writes if bereft of mum and siblings you reattached your truncated emotional urges to the team or the gang these could be exciting and fulfilling times this is a textbook example of cognitive dissonance faced with the um, sort of almost random emotional cruelty of why am I being separated from my parents at this early age? Um, you reattached your truncated er- emotional urges, as he says, and um, attempt to justify what's happened to you. I mean, even uh, historical examples um, in terms of uh, justification for, suffer- for suffering, you can actually look at sainthood. Um, like Saint Lidvine, who I'm uh, reading a book about at the moment, her suffering in life was so severe that uh, the priests and the church couldn't conceive that it could possibly be in vain. Uh, So they made her a saint and they said it had divine purpose. The psychotherapist Joy Shaverion writes how the boarding school students struck victims would undergo a psychological freezing which led to the growth of a protective shell, an armoured self. Um, So you're talking there about the sort of the external justifications but here it's the focus of this episode it's this internal justification mechanism at work creating this armored self and this is through the cognitive dissonance and the narratives that we tell ourselves mm. it's almost uh, i like imagining it in terms of kind of a cocoon an external crust that we just can't penetrate yeah and you can see that in um various famous people that have gone to boarding school. Um, for example, George Orwell uh, was extraordinarily hardworking, prolific, but also psychologically damaged. He can never relax or believe in his success. And we can see ourselves, perhaps not in the boarding schools of today, but at least in the middle-aged men who went to boarding school at its worst, when there wasn't just the emotional separation, the psychological damage due to the lack of parents, but also the fact mm. that these schools had basically no health and safety measures or um, teaching standards and employ very nefarious individuals. Um, well, I think, I think even today uh, you can make the argument, like um, 
the people that I know who have been to boarding schools, the way they represent these boarding schools to me, seems that hierarchies develop um, solely based upon this armoured self uh, and how they can kind of paint it to be um, adept at certain things or at least uh, I think the most cogent example for me is how they can uh, paint it to have um, they kind of distract from the reality of it with the material um, and instead of to be instead of being the focus is having so they're filling this void where the the self perhaps is prevented from accessing with purely material goods i mean uh, also with the supposed success of adult life um, and this is kind of the selling point of boarding schools and interestingly harry potter was that is awful because it sold this dream of oh you get to go to boarding school and you get this magical harry potter world and it was good for harry when you've got the dursleys to get away from but uh, for the vast majority of kids mm. you can have the magical environment but if you don't have your parents and this basic psychological need to be loved satisfied yeah. um, then it's awful and i mean look at churchill for example no doubt his upper-class upbringing was immensely important in his career success, uh, but it was also, no doubt, important for his crippling depression and alcoholism. Mm. Like the man supposedly controlled a country, but he couldn't control his own mind. So I'm just kind of imagining, like, a Harry Potter, the final chapter, like an alcoholic, divorced Harry, divorced from the kids. Or divorced from Ginny, sorry. Maybe she's got a black eye or two. Yeah, I think Ron would probably be worse off. <laughs> There's also uh, the boarding schools in the 20th century were worse because uh, the kids boarded for a lot longer. So it's, it is better today. Um, and the separation from the parents was a lot worse. Well, we've also got means of, uh, we've got means of attempting to stimulate meaningful connection via technology. Um, like you're lacking the touch, but... You can still see the faces, you can still hear the voice of your mother, even if she's not physically in the room. And this is a key insight. Who are the groups of people that we most associate in the Western world with initiation ceremonies? It's the rugby boys, it's the fraternities, it's the dorms, it's the private schools, it's rich people. And we can look at boarding school as a gigantic initiation ritual. And extending this to private schools, these institutions are key to shaping and forming the worldview of the class of the rich. Well, I think that kind of that element of exclusivity in terms of language and ideas that the typical secret societies conveyed, um, I think at least with the introduction of the internet, that's another possible reason for um, their decline in the sense of uh, the idea of gnosis, this secret knowledge that one could get from joining the hermetic order of the Golden Dawn. No, you can find a PDF of their manual online. So you don't need to go to such lengths to, uh, to achieve this um, enlightenment or transcendence as perhaps without the vehicle that is the internet you had to do in the past. But I suppose the irony is that even if these secret societies don't hold the power that they did um, back then, the rich, influential, powerful people of today are those middle-aged men 
who would have frolicked and drunk and um, enjoyed these societies as young men. Even though you can see that the internet um, is probably uh, a force for the good in decreasing the influence of these societies, Boris Johnson is Prime Minister and um, the rich still hold influence. And the creepy music's back because we're getting closer and closer to where we started. It's a worldview focused on power, privileged, wealth, success, and the permanent denial of any internal or external suffering. This could be the psychological suffering of a damaged childhood. Wealthy, busy parents are almost inevitably going to have less time for parenting. Or this could be the denial of the external suffering that exists in society. How can you justify having billions as you walk past a homeless person in the street? This is why a knowledge of cognitive dissonance is so relevant. Because like dehumanising an enemy soldier, a rich person walking past a homeless person is going to dehumanise, or at least justify the inequality by demonising or explaining away their poverty in terms of it's their fault, they're lazy, they don't deserve it. The 2,700 acre compound, sorry, campground of Bohemian Grove worked by physically shielding the rich from any potential cognitive dissonance. And we can look at various other institutions like private members clubs, private golf clubs, which have this physical space and an elite membership which exclude anyone who doesn't share this worldview. And you could argue that they are the kind of secular versions, the non-spooky versions of the Freemasons and of the Bohemian clubs of olden times. Or even the secular version of the church. Well, in terms of connection and... Yeah, in terms of connection and in terms of even prescribing to a gospel, even subscribing to a gospel of late capitalism. Yeah, and I mean, if you look at if you look at the August, I think it's the Augusta Club. Um, they don't, you can't apply for membership. They select you, and it costs ridiculous amounts. That's kind of cool, though. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and um, and then you have all of this space, you have all of this land, you have all all of these connections and these influential people that you can meet and talk to, and people that share the same worldview as you. Mm. You're being literally physically. Uh, shielded from the reality that that does exist. And then through this lens, we look at the cremation of care very differently. It's not scary. It makes sense. There's never any secret about what it's for. Cremating the dull cares of conscience, of worry. It's this magnificent symbol of what the rich have to do on a daily basis. They're not evil. They just rationalise and justify and explain. They may dress up in scary robes and use skeletons and worship a giant 40-foot owl, potentially Moloch. But really, they're just kids. The more sane side of the recording duo that we mentioned at the beginning, John Ronson, 
um, said about that night. My lasting impression was of an all-pervading sense of immaturity. The Elvis impersonators, the pseudo-pagan spooky rituals, the heavy drinking. These people might have reached the apex of their professions, but emotionally, they seem trapped in their college years. This describes it perfectly. Don't envy these people, don't be scared of these people. They're just little kids, trapped and existing in a shell maintained by institutions like Bohemian Grove. Yeah, the the child uh the child can't break free from the armored self, can they? Like uh what whatever is trapped within um, is infantile, is almost kind of primordial. Um and of course if we're trapped then there's no space for us to grow. And the sad irony is that we the majority of us spend our lives envying these people and the programs that we look, watch and like, like Housewives of Beverly Hills. Or no, we, we specifically we did, watch and like. What was it, Millionaire Sunset? We love Millionaire Sunset. We like looking at these homes and looking at these lives and thinking, I'd like that. Or that you must have it all. And that's mm. the psychology we have in regards to celebrities. You have fame, you have success, you have money. What are you complaining about? And this is the point, is that that, that doesn't solve people's problems. And if you have these upbringings and have these emotional issues and distant parents and this um, emotionally distant childhoods you can spend your life attempting to convince yourself that you have what you want and that's what these institutions do but we know that that isn't the case well I think it's almost uh, an, an analogy I like that I've actually just thought of it's the ultimate ritual because it is human sacrifice you're literally sacrificing your own humanity through the means of sacrificing your own self for this goal of um, the material. Yeah, and you can apply that um, in regards to the parents sending their kids away because they have to justify to themselves why they went away. Oh, okay, so my parents uh, gave me this cruel, emotionally distant experience. There must be a reason for that. I must have been toughened up. I must have got all of these connections. I must have had this successful life because of that. So therefore, I'm going to send my child have the same experience so it's not just in the children it's in the adult mm. and it's in this perpetual cycle which harry potter amongst other things um contributed to bohemian grove really is a playground for the powerful just not in the way you think so if there's one takeaway from this episode it's this stop envying the rich They might rule the world, but what's the point if you can't rule your own mind? And I don't think many people portray this better than a child with an emotionally distant dictatorial father who's enrolled at the New York Military Academy, private boarding school, age 13, and is now at the apex of power and prestige. Do you envy him? Because career-wise, he can't do much better. I'm talking about Donald Trump. So, um, thank you very much for listening. And uh, I will have more to say on the next episode, I assure you. Um, We'll see about that. Yeah, I'm sure everyone (laughs) can agree how interesting this one has been. Uh, 
as I am putting myself in the shoes of everyone, um, the listener. Thank you. And see you in a few weeks. (laughs) (laughs) Fingers crossed.